You are listening to audio from Summit Community Church. You can join us Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. on our YouTube channel at SCC Morganton. Maybe seated. Good morning again and welcome to Summit Community Church. Glad to have you with us. Stevens, thank you so much for a wonderful reading of God's Word. Appreciate that very, very much. Stevens and his wife, Alicia, have been a huge blessing to us since they moved into our community. And uh, Stevens and Alicia help lead our Hispanic church. It happens every Sunday afternoon right after this service upstairs. And so it's been a great sight to see, a wonderful thing to see in our community. Stevens and Alicia are now enrolled in Bible college, really feeling God's call on their lives for some ministry aspects. And so expecting a baby in July. So we're pleasantly just welcoming that into our presence, to our body here, the church. So thank you. So wonderful job, Stephen. Thank you so much. Thank you for what you do for our church and our community as well. So guys, we're, in, we're back in our series on Mark, season one. We just finished a series called Wrecked. Wrecked by the resurrection. Lives that were totally wrecked, totally transformed by the gospel, by Jesus' resurrection. Now we're back in Mark's gospel looking at how these lives, what they saw prior to the resurrection that led to their lives being wrecked, all these encounters with Jesus. When we left it last several weeks ago, we were in Mark chapter 4, where Jesus had calmed the storm. Jesus and his disciples were crossing the sea. At Christ's command, by the way, at his leading, they were crossing. A storm arises on the lake, and when it arises, they see that he's, Jesus is asleep. He's asleep in the stern. They're afraid for their very lives. They're terrified, afraid they're going to die. They wake Jesus up in their fear, and Jesus gets awake, wipes the sleep out of his eyes, looks at the storm, and just says, silence, be still. The storm ceases. There's immediate calm on the lake. Then it ends in fear. The disciples are then afraid again. Not afraid of the storm. It's over. But afraid of who is this, that even the winds and the waves obey him. Now, Christ had directed them to go to the other side. He had calmed this hurricane, hurricane, earthquake, seismic storm of big proportions with his word. And what we have to understand in this story today as we move into this series in Mark 5 once again is this. He calmed the storm on the sea for you and I and all of us. In whatever storms you and I might face in our lives, you and I are one word away from Jesus ceasing the storm and bringing an instant calm. As he calmed the storm, he will and can calm your life and mine as well. We're one word away. That word in the Greek for silence be still is one word. He just speaks speaks that word. The storm is gone. In your life and mine, he can calm and he will calm the storm in our lives. Christ has calmed this violent storm at his command going across the sea to this region here in Mark 5. As soon as he lands, he meets this man who is demon-possessed on the shore. In both cases, where the storm is calm, this man seeking him out, in both cases, the power of Jesus prevails over chaos and destruction. The storm desired to take the disciples down in the lake. Christ says, no, it's not happening. The demons desired to take this man's life. Jesus says, no, this is not happening. The power of Jesus is known and seen clearly in this story. Christ came straight from that confrontation with the storm to a confrontation of a storm in this man's life. This man is a perfect example in Mark 5 
of what we call in our lives spiritually called total depravity. Total depravity is a word that means, a phrase that means every one of us are corrupted by sin. By what we inherit through Adam and Eve in the fall, we inherit sin, we inherit a sin nature, we are totally depraved in the presence of God with our sinfulness. In that total depravity, what we've earned by our sin nature, we are contaminated and corrupted by sin. Totally contaminated, totally corrupted. This sin nature is what causes us to rebel against God. It causes us to do things we should not do and do the things we should not do and did not desire the right things. Within our sin nature, in and of ourselves, we are hopeless and we are helpless. As that word says, phrase says, we live, we exist in total depravity. Jesus came, as we know, to confront this sinful nature. He came to confront this kingdom of darkness. He came to confront total depravity and give us hope in a hopeless existence. Give us an abundant life, as he says in John 10.10. You and I cannot fix our sin nature. We cannot fix our sin problem. Only Jesus can do that. The Bible is so clear. So clear. The fact that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He came to save us from our sin and save us from our sin nature. We cannot repair ourselves. Only Jesus can repair us and remake us and make us brand new. What we see in this story right here is this. When His divinity, His divine nature being the Son of God, God in the flesh, when that meets depravity, there is an amazing, wonderful collision that takes place. If you remember back when the disciples were going in the boat, Christ did say in verse 30, 35 of Mark 4, let's cross over to the other side of the sea. At His command, they're going over. So right here, they cross the sea, and Jesus, they're under His authority. Right here, this man, here's why he went over there, why he landed where he did, because this man is coming out to meet Jesus by a divine appointment. The man has some idea, but he has literally nothing, no clue about what the depth of what's going to take place in this encounter with Jesus, this divine appointment. Christ encounters this demon-possessed man. There's going to be this dynamic collision between Jesus' divinity and this man's depravity by this divine appointment. There will be deliverance from sin in this man's life. Total deliverance from demon possession in this man's life. This is a glimpse of the kind of collision when Jesus encounters this demon-possessed man whose depravity, this total depravity, has taken him to the worst place possible. Look at verse 2. I, this is amazing to me. As soon as he got out of the boat, a man with an unclean spirit came out of the tombs and met him. Jesus had barely got his feet on the shore. This man comes out of the tombs to meet Jesus. This is amazing to me because right here, it's interesting because this man who interacted with nobody, and nobody interacted with him, look what happens. He seeks out Jesus. In his depravity, he even he seeks out Jesus because he realized he's sort of like this hopelessness and helplessness is eating him up. He comes and meets Jesus, this man who had basically written off society and whose society had written off initiates this encounter with Jesus. In his desperate condition, in a sense, there was an awareness of misery in his current condition and a miracle for his future. See, the demons also knew a showdown was going to take place, that it was inevitable. They knew this. That in divine encounter showdown is getting ready to happen. This man is a perfect example to us 
that not one person on the face of this earth is outside of God's reach. Nobody. Even in our total depravity of sin, there's nobody outside the reach of Jesus, outside the reach of God. Jesus can reach them. He will reach them. Christ can transform them. He will transform them. Christ can reform them, and he will reform them. This is evidence. This is a statement, a testimony of that fact of all of us in everyone's life. Look at verse 3. It says this man, he lived in the tombs, and no one was able to restrain him anymore, not even with a chain, because he often had been bound with shackles and chains, but had torn the chains apart and smashed the shackles. It says no one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. This man had walked away from living among the living to live among the dead. He was totally out of control. Nobody could control him, and he could not even control himself. Every day, all day, and all night, he tormented himself, as well as tormented others by his screaming and yelling and hollering throughout the night. He was in misery. And look at Mark's words to describe this man's misery, how far he had dropped to the depths of his depravity. What did he describe? He says, he lives in the tombs. His place to reside night and day is among the dead. It says that he has been known to be shackled and chained, but no one can hold him back. And he says, no one could subdue him. This word Mark uses in the original language in the Greek means to taming a wild beast. Do you get the picture? This man is now like a wild beast living among the dead, so out of control that shackles and chains cannot control him anymore. The evil forces that tormented this man among the tombs are very equal and parallel to the storm the disciples faced on the lake, on the sea they just encountered. This detailed description of this man by Mark is one of the most tragic but truthful stories of this human depravity. Verse 5, again, he says he was always, that word, always crying out and always cutting himself with stones. He was at the lowest of lows in his life. Now, to get the picture of him right now, we have no record of what his life was like prior to this experience. But I promise you this, he had fallen to this place. He was not there since he was born. Something happened that took this man down. Did he have a wife and children? Very possible. Did he have friends and have a hometown? We see that at the end. Yes, he did. Jesus declared that for him to go back. We don't know exactly where he had been or what was happening in his life. But whatever his condition was prior to this, Something led to this. It was nothing like his current condition. He has slipped. He had fallen down to this lowest of lows in his life, and he's crying out, trying to rid himself of this misery day and night. But here comes Jesus. Here comes Jesus into his life by divine appointment. Look at verse 6. When he saw Jesus from a distance, all he had to see was a side of him. When he saw him, he ran and knelt down before him, and he cried out with a loud voice, What do you have to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you before God, don't torment me. Because Christ had told him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Now, don't get deceived. When it says that he knelt down before Jesus, that's not a sign of genuine worship. That's not what this is right here. Kneeling before Jesus is a prostrating yourself before a person 
who's deserving of worship and reverence, yes. But what we see here is not genuine worship. Here's what's happening. By acknowledging Jesus by name, it was not in a statement of worship and worth. Here's what it was. It was an attempt to get the upper hand on Jesus. There was a thinking back then in the supernatural, the spiritual realms, that if you could call your adversary out by name before they call yours out by name, you've got the upper hand. You get to jump on them, in other words. These demons were trying to get a jump on Jesus. That's what they were doing. Trying to get the upper hand. But they could not do it. It was an attempt to control Jesus. And I want to tell you, that's a big praise note for us because obviously it didn't work. It will never work. Christ will always reign supreme in those encounters, those showdowns in the spiritual realms. While it was the right theological response, it did not have the right heart. But really, honestly, these demons here do call out more to Jesus by his name than even the religious leaders did of his day. They would not dare call him Jesus, Son of the Most High God. Never. They had evil intent, but they did call him out on it. So they, they were knowing, they knew something was coming, but they were going to want that last-ditch effort to fight. Jesus then strikes up the encounter again and says, What is your name? Look at verse 9. He says, What is your name? He asked. My name is Legion, he answered him, because we are many. Do you see that? They were posturing themselves, called Jesus out by name, and now they're going, my name is Legion, because we are many. Look at you, we're many. A legion back in the day was a Roman battalion of soldiers. Matter of fact, 6,000 soldiers to be exact. So they're going, Jesus, you better be intimidated because there's a lot of us. You better stand back. There's a lot of us. We're organized. We're unified. We're mighty. And we're ready to fight like a whole battalion of Roman soldiers. But what is so interesting is in their attempts, these underlying attempts to intimidate Jesus, they inevitably knew it was futile. They knew it. Right after they insinuate to Jesus they're organized, they're unified, they're mighty, and ready to fight like a unit of Roman soldiers, they show how intimidated by Jesus they really are. Underneath that pose, that posture, posturing for Jesus was a fear. It was a little bit of intimidation. Let's look at verse 10. And he begged him, begging Jesus earnestly not to send him out of the region. What has happened? The tormentor quickly has become the tormented in this passage as he contemplates his destiny. Now, notice... As this continues to develop, they beg Jesus a second time, and Jesus grants their request. Look at verse 11. A large herd of pigs was there feeding on the hillside. The demons begged him, send us to the pigs so that we may enter them. So he gave them permission. There's your authority. Christ says, I'll, I'll allow this. That's as far as I'm going to go. He gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. The herd of about 2,000 rushed down the steep bank into the sea, and drowned there. Now, in this whole story, this very unique story in the Gospel of Mark, I've often had a question of, what is up with the pigs? Why did Jesus not just destroy the demons right there on the spot instead of granting their permission to go into the pigs? If you've had that same question, I'm glad you did because I did. I have. And here's what I think is happening. 
See, Jesus allowed this. He gave permission for this because the time for the total demonstration of his authority over demons had not yet come. That was going to be down the road a short distance. That total domination, total demonstration over evil was coming at the cross to pay for our sin. It had not come yet, so Christ says, yeah, I'll grant that permission. Because on the cross, as Paul says in Colossians 2, it says Jesus did this. At the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him, in Jesus. That's the final destruction. That's the final blow. But it had not come yet. He's like, yeah, I'll grant permission. But he also, he wanted to give a picture for the people to know what their intent is. The evil intent behind the demons and what they do to people in their lives. You're not just looking at somebody who's miserable in the sense of just being obnoxious. There's an agenda by the evil that's around. He wants to point that out. Look at verse 13. The herd of about 2,000 rushed down the steep bank again into the sea and were drowned there. This destructive element, nature of the evil spirits was on display in 2,000 pigs rushing off the bank. It's a visual for the people to understand, here's their intent. It's not just to cause misery. That's the first step. Their point is, Satan's strategy is to kill, steal, and destroy. Christ says, I want you to see it. If you're standing there as these pig farmers were, and these pigs are grazing there, and all of a sudden this man who is demon-possessed, something starts happening to him, and all of a sudden your pigs start squealing, whatever, something's happening to them, what's going on here? This guy's calming down there, getting wild, what's happening? And 2,000 pigs rush off the steep bank into the water. Of course they're in shock. Jesus says, I want you to get the real picture. The intent of Satan and his demons are to steal, kill, and destroy, not just misery. They want to take you out. That's what's happening. Jesus allowed this to demonstrate what really is going on. And prior to this, when it describes the man, all the violence on himself, all the cutting by the stones, the crying out, was them trying to ultimately destroy this man as an image bearer of God. But guess what? They would not and did not succeed. What the demons could not do on this man was accomplished in the pigs. And Christ says, see there, that's what their goal is. That's what their objective is. That's what they want to do. As we move toward the end of the story, I want us to focus on two really important pieces. Really important parts that play together in this whole narrative that Mark gives us. The first is the miraculous, obvious miraculous healing of the man. And in combination with that, the second is the tragic response of the crowds. They go hand in hand. Verse 14, it says, The men who tended the pigs, tended them, ran off, and reported it in the town and the countryside. And the people went to see what had happened. They came straight to Jesus and saw the man who had been demon-possessed sitting there, dressed, and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs. And here's a tragic response. Then they began to beg him to leave their region. So here you have these pig farmers who witnessed what took place. They go back to the town to share with the people what had happened. 
the beauty of this man's life being radically changed, but also the tragedy at Ulster Pigs, the people come to witness it for themselves. They come out, and what do they see? They see Jesus on the scene, still there. They witness this man who had been demon-possessed, who they heard all night long, all day, every day, crying and screaming and hollering and cutting himself and breaking shackles, breaking chains, being violent, just being like an animal, a beast, that wild beast. Now, sitting there in his right mind, thinking clearly and dressed, being intelligible. Things were restored again. You would think the townspeople would come rushing in and going, wow, look at this man. This man who had tortured us, tormented us all these years with his crying and his wailing and all this stuff and lived in the tombs who we'd written off, who he had written us off. Look at him now. Wow, this is a miracle. Jesus, thank you. You would think, wouldn't you? But they didn't because in verse 15, they were afraid. Now, if you remember, the previous story about the storm ended in, ended in fear, didn't it? The disciples were afraid, not of the storm at the end, but of Jesus saying, who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? And right here, they're afraid. They're going, you got to go. You're, you're scaring us. But the tragedy to me is this. Who else needed deliverance in that town? Who else needed Jesus' presence in their lives? But the people weren't willing to see it. They said, leave. you got to leave. Because you're making us uncomfortable. When they saw this with their own eyes, look at their response. Again, it says they begged him to leave, verse 17. And then look at the response of the healed man, verse 18. As he was getting in the boat, Jesus, the man who had been demon-possessed, begged him earnestly that he might remain with him. Jesus did not let him, but told him, go home to your own people and report to them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So he went out, began to proclaim into the capitalists how much Jesus had done for him, and they were all not afraid, but what? They were amazed. The townspeople look at Jesus and they go, you make us uncomfortable, you need to leave. The healed man says, Jesus, please let me go with you. Let me leave with you. But Jesus says, no, I don't want, you don't need to go with me. You see, when Jesus radically changes a person's life, you can't get enough of Jesus. You can't get enough of His presence because what He's done for you, in you, in your life. So my personal question today is this. How much time do you really want to spend with Jesus? Do you limit how much you spend with Him, how much you talk to Him, or is it like, I can't get enough? Because to the degree that Christ has changed your life is the amount of time you want to spend with your Savior and your Lord who's changed your life radically. So what does that look like in time spent together? This man who has experienced this life-changing experience right on the spot says, Jesus, I can't get enough of you. Let me go with you. I want to be with you by your side. There's another whole movement here. He has a genuine desire to be with Jesus because his life has been changed. But in that change element, something radically happens here by Jesus' response. 
we think these would go, man, dude, you, your life has been so changed. Yeah, come on. We got space. Come on, get in the boat. It's all good. We'll take you with us. You know, I would think that, right? Sometimes I do. But Jesus says he can't go with him. And that man's probably going, really? After all you've done for me, I just want to be with you. I just want to be with you. But Jesus says what? I want you to, don't go with me. I want you to go home. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell the people from your community what the Lord has done for you, how He's changed your life. Let them experience you up close and personal as your life has changed. Be a presence, the Lord's presence in their lives. Go home. Tell everybody what's happened. Here's another truth for us in this story. So often, we can get really comfortable in a setting like this. Being around Christian brothers and sisters in Christ, being with the family of God, gets to be a wonderful place, and we should want to be together. We should. We need to. We must. But, you know what Jesus says? Don't spend all your time here. I need you to go. Go out there. Be a presence in this world. Be a light in this very dark place. Be salt where there's no flavor in this life. Tell them what I've done in your life. When you've experienced me, let them know how you've experienced me. I need you to go. Don't just stay here. Go. That is a big thing I see in this passage. Christ commands us to go. Both stories, the storm and this story of the man, ends in fear. But that fear should motivate us to go out even deeper because it's like, who is this? I don't know all the details yet, but he's changed my life. And I'll let you know how he's changed my life. I'm going to tell you about him. Both outer and inner storms have been overcome in these two stories by the authority of Jesus. With one word, Jesus calms a hurricane, earthquake, storm of seismic proportions. With his word, he delivers a demon-possessed man who's radically changed forever. A society had written off, who had written off society, and Jesus says, you're healed. You're made whole. Demons are gone. Now, go tell them. There's a song that I've got on a playlist right now. I've made me a playlist on Spotify, and I've simply titled this playlist, Victory. And one of the songs I've got in that playlist I keep playing over and over again is a song by Elevation Worship. It's called Authority. And I want to read you some of the words. It goes like this. Creation knows the voice that spoke into the void. The breath that brought the dust to life and sang the stars to form. Darkness fears your voice that drove it back before. And though the night is long, I know your light will drive it back once more. And here's the, here's the chorus. One word from you, things change on your authority. Your word, it's true. Things change on your authority. Jesus, I know my fight is not my own. Its end is in your hands. I worship you because I know all things must bow to your command. One word from you, 
things change on your authority. Your word is true. Things change on your authority. Heaven will prevail. Strongholds will be moved. Spirits will be silenced and cower at his rule. I know my God is for me. So what about a fear? For nothing, nothing will deny him the glory that is his. I've been camping out on that. Because I'm like you, you're like me. I've got storms. You've got storms. And my constant prayer is, God, I'm waiting on your word. Because your word has authority. Your word speaks life where there's death. Your word speaks truth where there's lies. Waiting on your word, Jesus. Please speak. I want to ask you, are you waiting on that one word from Jesus? What in your life is so hopeless and causes you to feel helpless? And what you truly need is that one word from Jesus that will change everything. This man meets Jesus on the shore this day. He's been in misery, but I don't know how long, but for a long time. That one encounter, Jesus speaking into his life, he is delivered and he is healed. He's made right. Do you need that word from Jesus today? He's here with us. He is among us. He speaks and he works. As we stand in worship, we're going to sing a song called No One Else. Make a declaration of Jesus and Jesus, no one else will do. I just want you. No one else will do. All I need is you. No one else. Just you. Let's stand together and worship. Cry out to God. Let God hear your heart. Hear your life. Surrender your storms to him. Father, we pray. As we surrender, we bow in your presence and worship. Speak as only you can speak. Move as only you can move. Stir as only you can stir. Father, have your way in our hearts, we pray. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Summit Community Church, please check out our website at summitchurch.me or on social media on Facebook or Instagram at SCC Morganton.